My name is John Fairchild, uh, uh, interim pastor at Grace. Uh, it's time to release GK kids. So away you go, kids, to your classes and meet your volunteers and your helpers in their blue t-shirts back at the door. They will guide you to your classroom. Parents, not to worry, they're in good hands. And uh, I think junior youth goes as well uh, for uh, at this time of the service. The rest of us will remain here and we will be studying in uh, the second chapter of the little book of Colossians in your New Testament, uh, a letter written by Paul uh, to uh, the Christians, a little church, I don't know how little or how big it was, no idea, uh, in the city of Colossae, uh, which would be in western Turkey in our frame of reference today. And, uh, and uh, uh, Paul had never been there. Uh, there were other Christians who went there, Christian missionaries from other cities, and uh, they found people who were uh, ready to receive the message of Jesus, and a church was born, and so Paul, uh, having never met them, is writing this letter to the Colossians. And we remarked uh, last week how <clears throat> Colossae uh, was not a very uh, famous, not a very important city, you might say, important, uh, and yet here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about them and uh, talking about the letter that was written to them by Paul. It's a letter about various aspects of the Christian faith and the Christian life and things that were pertinent to them. And uh, so we'll, we'll continue our study of Colossians this morning. Uh, let me pray briefly, and then we'll dig, dig in. Lord, we thank you for your word. Like the psalmist said, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray that you would uh, speak and enlighten our thoughts and our minds, blow out the cobwebs, wake us up, help us put on our thinking caps, and, uh, and to engage what your spirit has to say to us this morning. Light our pathway, show us how to live, how to walk, show us how to come to Christ if that is still awaiting us in our lives. Show us how to go forward and live in Christ if that is where we're at. But Lord, we all need you in some way, so we look to you now and commit this time to you. Amen. <clears throat> Paul, as he writes to the Colossians, has a, as I said last week, a context in mind. Uh, there were a lot of things going on in the city of Colossae. There were a lot of philosophies floating around in the air. There were very different belief systems and religions than the Christian faith. One of them was uh, something called Gnosticism. It wasn't yet known as an entity in those days, but it was becoming so. These ideas were infiltrating into the society. Uh, and uh, Gnosticism talked about Jesus, but in a very different way and in a very uh, wrong way uh, compared to the way of Christ as we know it in the scriptures and through the church. So Paul has them in mind as he writes the letter. Uh, he has uh, various other things in mind, too. Uh, <clears throat> Judaizers were uh, radical Jewish teachers who used to travel and teach against Christianity and try to talk Christians back into doing all the Jewish regulations and all the Jewish laws, food laws, festivals, special days, circumcision, all of those things. Those are the things you need to know God, they would say. Uh, and uh, the Christian gospel is now saying, it's faith in Christ alone, not those things anymore. So there was a conflict there with the Judaizers, and there were superstitions, astrology was big in those days, 
And uh, so as we read through chapter 2, you're going to see phrases and things, and I'll try to point out some of them to you. Uh, But they, those things that I've mentioned are in the background, and Paul has them in mind as he gives instructions to the Christians. And we also pointed out last week, there are things in our context, here in our society, our culture that we live in, all kinds of beliefs and systems and movements and and things uh, that I wonder if Paul was writing to us, what would he be addressing about what we have to contend with, uh, with our faith here and now. But uh, as I was reading Colossians 2, I was struggling all week with, wow, there's so much good stuff in here. Where do I start? How do I squeeze it all into half an hour? Well, let's just get started. And, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do, but we can't talk about everything. So uh, if I don't uh, stop and talk about your favorite verse, please forgive me. But uh, here we go. Uh, I like to picture Paul with all those other things that I mentioned, astrology and philosophies and Judaism and Gnosticism, all on one side of a balanced scale. And he puts Jesus alone on the other side. And what his whole message is, Jesus outweighs all of them by far. That's kind of a summary of Colossians chapter 2. Verse 1. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. What's Paul's struggle? I believe it's prayer. He's wrestling hard and praying hard for them, though he's never met them. In our fourth study, when we get to chapter four, we'll spend more time on prayer. So I won't say anything more about Paul's prayers other than to note he was praying, believe me. Verse two, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm going to come back to verse 3 later in the message about all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. So uh, just sort of, we'll just set it aside for now and we'll come back to it. <clears throat> verse 4 is a clear reference to some of the confusing and very attractive teachings that were in their culture. Verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Notice he does admit they have some fine-sounding arguments, uh, but that's never a basis for truth. It's just a fine-sounding argument. We're after truth. Verse 5 to 7 talk about discipleship uh, and, and living a firm, solid, disciplined Christian walk, the only antidote to the fine-sounding arguments. Let's just read verse 5 to 7. For though I am absent from you in body, in other words, the, the master apostle wasn't there. They, they weren't accountable to him. But listen to the strength of their faith, even though Paul wasn't here to sort of watch over them. They're okay. They're going ahead anyway. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. That's like saying my heart is with you. And delight to see how orderly you are. Some translations will say to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
Paul says he delighted to see how orderly or how disciplined they were and how firm their faith in Christ was. Those are two essential keys to resisting all the swirling winds of teachings and philosophies that were around them and continue to be around us. An orderly, disciplined faith, not jumping here, jumping there, up there, oh, that's nice, oh, yeah, you know, and, and all, but just sticking to the track of following Christ and a firm faith. Let me ask you, is your Christian life orderly and disciplined? How are you doing? Um, is it orderly in the sense uh, you gather regularly with fellow Christians, like we are here now? But there are also things like small groups, prayer groups. Uh, uh, do you have a, a set routine in your life where you're, you're, you're pretty well always there and you're committed to it? That's part of an orderly Christian life. Very important. There are a lot of Christians today, I don't say this judgmentally, I say it, it with worry in my heart, who are kind of free-floating and not really connected anywhere. I think that's dangerous. Be careful. Glad you're here this morning. I hope you'll maybe join a small group in our, in our church uh, come the fall when they start up again, as Einer was mentioning those earlier this morning. Um, is regular service a uh, part of your orderly Christian life? Einer gave us a message a few weeks ago about the discipline of serving. And uh, sometimes we just have to say to ourselves, I'm going to step up and start serving somewhere because it's the, a, a thing that Jesus would have me do in some way, in some form, uh, to people around me, maybe in the church, maybe somewhere in the community. Is giving a part of your orderly and disciplined life? Giving back out of gratefulness for all that God has given us. Just some questions for, for you, for me. Let's move on to chapter, uh, well, or sorry, verse 6 we read. Paul talks about being rooted in Christ and being built up in Christ. Rooted is an agricultural term in Greek. Being built up is a construction term in Greek. We are rooted in Christ as we put our roots down into him, following him, praying to him, worshiping him, learning of him, studying the word. We are built up, sort of we visibly grow in faith, in love, in service, that the roots produce the growth. The rooted produces the building. And, uh, and that's important in our lives to have that that balance going on. And then Paul ends verse 7 by saying, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let me ask you, do you, are you a person who rarely gives thanks? Uh, or are you a person who occasionally gives thanks? Or are you a person who is overflowing with thankfulness? Thankfulness and gratefulness is such a healthy thing for your soul and such an encouraging and attractive things, thing to those around us who see us and walk beside us from day to day. Nobody likes to hang out with a grumbling grouch. So uh, let's be overflowing with gratefulness. Oh, I heard a joke this week. Uh, um, we were talking about the cup half full, cup half empty, you know, the pessimist, the optimist, thankful person. And, uh, and, and it was Einer. He said, and you know, what a, you know what an engineer says about that, that cup there? He says, he says, that cup is twice the size it needs to be, uh, you know, in, instead of... Anyway, bless the engineers in our, in our church this morning. Verse 8. Uh, that wasn't even in my notes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Paul goes on, see to it. Listen, when you hear those words, see to it, we should see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, 
which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. That phrase there, the basic principles of this world, what does that mean? That's interesting. Some translations will say uh, the, uh, the elemental spiritual forces of this world. It seems to have something to do, as best as we can tell, with the spiritual realm where there are angels and demons and spiritual forces and they can take people captive or there are traditions here, he says, or there are philosophies. Goodness knows how many philosophies there are, but, but the point here is that be careful because, why? Because they can actually take you captive. They can run your life. They can dictate how you think, how you see the world. Paul is simply saying, let Christ do that now in our life, the Son of God, our Savior, and our Lord. Lots more could be said there. We'll keep moving. Verse 9. For in Christ, Paul says, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. That's a great statement there of the deity of Christ. All the fullness of deity lives in him in bodily form. Remember the Gnostics denied that Jesus had a body? Paul is saying here, oh yes he does. And all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And this is, this is the doctrine of the incarnation. God taking on flesh to live amongst us in the person of Jesus. And then he says uh, in verse 10, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. What a beautiful, affirming, comforting thought for us Christians. Some translations will say, in, in Christ you are complete. I'm not complete physically. I'm not complete mentally. I'm not complete emotionally in every way. But in Christ, as far as salvation goes, I'm full. I've got everything I need. And so do you, if you are in Christ. Abs, nothing missing. That's what the word means. Topped up. We used to, the old days when we used to go to the gas station and get our gas and they'd say, well, check your oil, sir. And they, okay, and, they, and he'll say, I topped it up, sir. Brought it up to full. We have that fullness in Christ. I remember once <clears throat> my father told us a story. He said, I was talking to a couple of Mormon fellows on the front lawn this morning when I was raking leaves. Mormonism is a, a different religion. It's looking a little Christian, but it's not. And uh, I said, oh, what happened? And he says, well, they, they, had, they were trying to convince me to take the Book of Mormon and to study it and to adopt the Mormon faith. And I said, oh, how'd that conversation go? And uh, Dad said, uh, well, he said it was getting a little frustrating, and finally I asked him a question. I said, what was that? He said, I, he said, I know they believe the Bible, or they say they believe the Bible. So I asked them, do you fellows believe the Bible? And they said, oh, yes, sir, we respect the Bible greatly. And he said to them, well, my Bible says, and he's quoting Colossians 2.10 here, that in Christ I am complete. And he said, so if I'm complete in Christ, why do I need your Mormon faith and your Mormon Bible? And I said, well, way to go, Dad, that's good. And uh, I said, what did they say? And he said, they, uh, they just said, well, you have a good day, sir. And they left. So, good question. I thought, good for you, Dad. That's, that's brilliant. 
If I'm complete in Christ, why do I need something else? You don't. Either you're complete in Christ or you're not. No extra works needed, no other religion needed, no further philosophy needed. As far as salvation and my acceptability before God, even though I'm a sinner, he has provided for me and made me complete, made me full. Go back and look at that verse later on your own and let it sink deeply into your hearts. So uh, we've got to verse 10, verse 11. He's going to be talking here about who Christ is. Well, we just talked about that. Uh, and then what he's done, uh, and uh, etc. So verse 11, Paul goes on to say, in him, in him is a, is a key phrase in the book of Colossians, in him, in Christ, that just describes the position of the Christian. You are in Christ. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Just a simple thought here. The Jews practiced circumcision and it was done by the hands of men and it was a physical act, a, a, re, a removal and a little change made in the body uh, to mark a person as a, as a member of the Jewish family. Paul is saying here, that's not the circumcision we're dealing with anymore. Christ circumcises us, but it's spiritual. He makes a change in your heart. And he, he changes the, the sinful nature, changes our heart, gives it, we're born again. We have a new heart, a new life, a whole new relationship with God. And that's what is the circumcision of Christ. A change, yes, but of the heart in a spiritual sense. Really, really important. And then uh, he goes on to talk about baptism just very briefly. The circumcision done by Christ, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Now that change of heart is something that happens just between me and God in a spiritual way. But baptism is a physical expression and a picture of what has happened privately in my own heart. Baptism was important to the early Christians and it still should be important to us today. In baptism, we, we are buried with him, kind of symbolically under the water, and we are raised with him to a new life, symbolically out of the water. Christ died, went down into the grave, was raised from the grave. We follow him in a symbolic way with the use of water. That's what Christian baptism is. And it's important to confess our faith before God, before the angels and the demons, before our brothers and sisters. It strengthens our faith and helps us declare where we stand. <clears throat> when you get baptized, you're saying, here I stand, and here's who I believe in, and here's who I am. Okay, let's read uh, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is a beautiful and powerful passage describing what happened at Christ's cross. We'll, we just read it. We'll come back to this a little later as well. Really, really important. Let's just read through the rest of the chapter before we circle back. So we're at verse 16. Therefore, because of the cross and the forgiveness of our sins and 
our completeness in Christ. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Those were Jewish things, right? Paul says we've moved past those now. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Uh, there was this practice of the worship of angels by Gnostics and some uh, Jewish people as well. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. A lot of people were really into visions and building whole belief systems on these visions that they had had. Paul says, this is tragic, he has lost connection with the head, that would be Christ, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you, Christians, died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Here's more man-made rules. Remember I said there was a lot of this stuff all through the chapter? Here, here's more of it right here. And some of these rules are that Christians were being enticed to say, oh, maybe I should do that. Some of the rules were, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul says these are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Some people think that we, I can overcome my, my, my sensual attractions, whatever they are, to money, possessions, sex, drugs, whatever. I can overcome it with sheer discipline and harsh treatment of my body. Paul says, no, you can't. You can only through the Spirit of God, through a life changed by Christ, living gratefully and following him as we go forward. Okay, let's go back to verse 3. This is maybe a little different tack than we usually take. And I'm just going to try to drill down a little bit as to what could Paul possibly be talking about in verse 3. Let me read it again. Paul says, he's praying for the Colossians that they would know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, the Gnostics... Well, the Christians, when they read this, they would have elbowed each other and said, he's talking about the Gnostics. Because the Gnostics were into wisdom, mystery, and knowledge. But it was exclusive knowledge, very esoteric, very highfalutin and hard to understand, and only for a select few very gifted individuals who could move on to the next level of salvation through their various levels of Gnosticism. And so it was all very mysterious. Paul says, do you want mystery? You want wisdom? You want knowledge? It's in Christ. And so he's taking his people back there. Not to, the, to those things, but it's all in Christ. We love wisdom. We love, I love mystery. I love to be intrigued and amazed and fascinated. Paul says, let Christ be your fascination. I love wisdom and really seeing how everything fits together. Paul says, you'll find it in Christ. So, 
What wisdom and what knowledge, what treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ? Let's just work on this a little bit. <clears throat> treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everybody's after knowledge. We live in the information age. Everybody's scouring the internet to learn more. It could be a, a knockout recipe for meatloaf. It could be investment secrets. It could be that perfect vacation spot. Let me suggest to you that those things, though they're part of life and there's nothing wrong with those things, are toast crumbs on the floor compared to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ. What are those treasures? What could they be? Certainly has to do with God and salvation, yes. <clears throat> I think one aspect of those treasures that are found in Christ have to do with, in Christ, the big human questions that have always popped into the minds of humans and that we have always wondered all of our existence. Those big human questions, not my meatloaf recipe or investment secrets, the bigger, deeper things that make us human are answered in Christ. What are some of those questions? Philosophers and scientists hotly debate and have for thousands of years and continue to, to debate the questions of where did we come from and what is our origin? Where in the world? How did we get here and where did we come from? And then there's the question of meaning. Who am I? What is my identity? And what is my worth and my significance in this big world? Huge question. Third question is, has to do with morality. What's right? What's wrong? How do I tell the difference? And who's got it right and who doesn't? You and I know that's hotly contested in our current culture, <clears throat> in the culture wars that are going on, but how do, how do we know what's right? Is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? Paul is saying, I think, you'll find out in Christ. And lastly, the big question is, something we all wrestle with and speculate on all the time is our destiny. Where are we going? Where am I going? Where am I going to end up? What happens when I die? Animals don't ask those questions, as far as I know. <clears throat> I had a talk with our cat, Coat Toby. <clears throat> and I said, Toby, do you think about the meaning of life? And she looked at me very sweetly and said, uh, I like that new cat food we've got. I said, Toby, I don't think you understood me. Do you ever think about who you are and your identity? And Toby said, Thanks for freshening up my litter the other day. I said, Toby, focus. Work with me here. What's it all about and where do you fit into the big picture? You. And she said, I know I just came in, but would you let me out again, please? I don't think animals ask these questions, but we do because we're human. And there's one distinctive thing about being human is that we're made in the image of God. We're not God, but we're like God in some ways. 
we have the capacity to know God and we have an instinct to worship. And that has to do with our, our, uh, our being made in the image of God. And we tend to ask these big questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? What's the, what, how do you know right and wrong? And where am I going in life? They're all answered in Christ. Where did I come? Uh, we don't have time to dig into all of them. I'd like to spend a little bit of extra time on meaning instead of the others. But where did I come from? There's two big stories. Uh, there's the, the, the atheistic, materialistic, evolutionary story where there was a big bang and a, and a lot of hydrogen gas and, and 13.8 billion years. And here we are. And uh, it's, a, it's a very miraculous story. And I'm frankly, I, between you and me and the doorpost, I don't have enough faith to believe that. That order comes out of disorder, chaos, and chance. I, I'm not there. The other story is that we were purposefully and intentionally and thoughtfully and lovingly created by God. That's the Christian story. It's a huge story and a beautiful story, but it, ha it casts deep implications on my meaning and right and wrong and my destiny. Then, of course, right and wrong. Um, you know, ultimately, how do we know right and wrong? I, I think it's found in Christ, in his life. Look at the way he lived. His life was all about love, love for God. The two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor, he said. And then he lived a life to show it, ultimately ending up on the cross out of love for us who needed help. That's awesome. But we know right and wrong through looking at him and his life. And then, and then lastly, our destiny. Um, where are we going when we die? Christ is all about that. And the, the, the story, well, the, the, the atheistic, uh, materialistic sort of story uh, basically is very bleak, very gloomy, and utterly without hope. All the stars will burn out, and the universe will go black, and nothing you've ever done, said, whether it's good or bad, will ever be remembered or appreciated forever and ever. So have a nice life. They say, well, that's true. I don't think it is, number one, and secondly, it's, it's crushing to the soul. No wonder people lack meaning and purpose in life today. But the story of Christ is so different. We were in Christ, if you are, we will be gathered to him. And it says, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And it says that <clears throat> we will be in the presence of our God, our shepherd, our savior. The old things will have passed away. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, etc. The future is awesome in Christ. Let's talk about meaning for a moment. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, says there may be no more fundamental question in life than what is the meaning of life. Some people say it's not relevant or important. Don't worry about it. And yet surveys reveal across the globe, all cultures, when asked whether they think about the meaning and the purpose of life, nearly three quarters of people say often or sometimes. It's on people's mind. Just in a little bit of study on meaning in life, <clears throat> I discovered three pathways. The first pathway is there are some people completely secular and atheistic who say there is no meaning to life. So stop torturing yourself trying to figure it out. Just enjoy yourself. You've only got a short time. Way to go. And that's, that's their answer. There is no ultimate meaning to life, so don't worry about it. 
That's the first pathway. <coughs> Second pathway is you create your own meaning. You don't necessarily believe in God, but you say, I think the key though is you must create your own meaning. And some people will create a meaning built around a beautiful family. Some people will create a meaning around uh, uh, doing good for others. Some people, it's environmental, and we're going to leave the world in a better way than which we found it. All of which are good. But they leave God out. Created meaning falls short, because we're all creating a lot of different meanings. The third pathway is we discover meaning. There's a, there is an ultimate meaning, and in our searching and in our philosophizing and in our thinking and examining everything and from every possible angle, we discover, ha, ah, there's the meaning of life, except different people discover different things. And, uh, and it's, it's still difficult. Do, have, I dis have I really discovered it, or have I, you know, where am I at here? So there's, there's something, something difficult even about a discovered meaning. Perhaps there's another pathway, though. <clears throat> I don't know if you remember or if you were even born back around 1980, but... Uh, Remember the, the Star Trek program, of course, Captain Kirk and the gang? And uh, the, then the first Star Trek movie came out in 1980, around. And uh, <coughs> I, I went to see it, of course. I was a Trekkie. And um, long story short, they were being followed by a strange object. And it got closer and closer and closer. And they discovered it's a space probe that, that goes out into space to gather information. And the space probe, though, seemed fascinated with the Starship Enterprise, and it was following it, and it seemed to be rather threatening. And so they were concerned, what's the space probe up to? What does it want? And, and it, it was very mysterious, and it seemed to have an intelligence of its own. And uh, <clears throat> finally, Spock got in touch with the space probe and did a mind meld and found out what it was thinking. And he came back and he said, it's looking for its creator. And it knows that humans created it and launched it, and it wants to make contact. And so the actual guy who created and built and designed that space probe sacrificed himself and went to it and did a thing and they became one. Okay, but <clears throat> that's... Why is he talking about that? <clears throat> because we are wandering in space, searching for meaning. And meaning is found in being reunited with our creator the one who made us, who designed us, who loved us. But how can we be reunited with our creator? How can we find, you might say, our way home to God? <clears throat> that takes us to verses 13 and 14. The cross, the Christian gospel. <clears throat> Verse 13 ends and says, he forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code <clears throat> with its regulations, <clears throat> excuse me, with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. <clears throat> What's this written code that Paul's talking about? In his day, uh, a prisoner in a cell or perhaps uh, an unfortunate man crucified on a cross there would be a piece of paper outside the door of your cell and it would have all your crimes on it and that was the written code against you. It condemned you. On the cross, <clears throat> they would sometimes nail it to the cross 
and it would list all of your crimes, you know, rape, murder, whatever, uh, treason, and, uh, and that's what this man is being hanging here, being crucified for. And so Paul uses that analogy here to say that our sinful record as human beings is the written code. <clears throat> he says it's opposed to us and it's hostile to us. It sure is because it condemns us and marks us as guilty. Except that in Christ, that horrible list of sins is nailed to his cross. You've heard Christ died for our sins. I had a plumbing job done <clears throat> a couple months ago in the basement, big one. I had to dig up the cement floor and replace old pipes and everything. And <clears throat> plumber was there for <clears throat> hours, a couple of days. And I'm thinking there's a bill coming. He said, yeah, I'll send it to you by email. I said, great, I could hardly wait. <laughs> it came. It was a big one. Fortunately, I was able to pay it. Every human has a bill coming, an invoice. But we have to pay God because we've broken his law. Imagine a knock at your door. Here's the gospel. And you open the door and Jesus is standing there. And you're aware of your sins and he's got a piece of paper in his hand. And he says, can I come in? I want to show you something. And, <clears throat> and you say, what's that in your hand? And he says, this is the invoice of what you owe God. And then you notice at the bottom of it that it says, paid in full, signed, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying in these verses here. There was this list that he, I love those words, it says, he has taken it out of the way. <clears throat> you might say to Jesus, what about my sins? And he would say, I've taken them away. Come with me. Let's go meet my father. He's awesome. So there we are. <clears throat> Paul's going through all kinds of things in their society and he keeps saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. All that stuff on one side of the balance beam, Jesus on the other. He outweighs them all. I hope that someday in the future, <clears throat> when I'm six feet under and pushing up daisies, <clears throat> that some of you might remember me and say, good old John. He used to always remind us of Paul's phrase in Romans 1.16 where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and John used to remind us that do not be ashamed of your Christian faith. It can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any other belief system in the world and defeat it. It stands head and shoulders above all the other philosophies and all the other religions and all the other works systems and guilt systems. It offers us these things right here. And then John used to also tell us that as time goes by, you will find Jesus growing larger and larger and larger and more and more beautiful and broad and deep until finally all the other systems of belief are forced and compelled to kneel down and confess that he is Lord because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge the worship team can come up <clears throat> let's pray Lord, we need you so much. 
How often are we stumbling around in life, <clears throat> picking up toast crumbs of trivial information and walking right past the rubies and the diamonds and the jewels that are found only in you? What a treasure we have in your cross. What deep eternal wisdom is found in your word. <clears throat> what a trusted friend to us is your spirit. What a future awaits us in your presence forever. As we close now, we ask <clears throat> that you go with us and you continue to speak to our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.